It is 9.32, time now for the broadcast of the Bible study class from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere. Right, right before usually the readings, uh, the scripture readings themselves, and as its name would imply, it collects the major theme or themes for that particular Sunday. And since we had the opportunity to choose this one this week, uh, I can assure you that it does reflect the theme, and that is grace alone. Let's read through through this together, and uh, and I hope you'll see that. Lord God, Heavenly Father. Since we cannot stand before you relying on anything we have done, help us trust in your abiding grace and live according to your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now you see that the collect starts out by stating a fact after we address God. It states a fact, since we cannot stand before you. And that, again, is certainly uh, well attested in God's word. So we're acknowledging we cannot stand before you relying on anything we have done. In other words, it's not by any of our accomplishments what we have done. And uh, that we, we simply cannot stand there based upon that. That's a given. And with that being the case, help us trust in your abiding grace. Notice it's not just your grace, but your grace that abides with us here, okay? And second thing, help us live according to your word, all right? So you can see right away, as I said, many Sundays, you can come into church and the old, particularly the Old Testament and the gospel lessons should line up thematically if you're trying to search out what's the main theme. And on festival Sundays, the epistle lesson also will line up with all with the other two readings. But if you're kind of searching right away, you might read through the collect as you come in and see what the collect uh, has to say that particular Sunday. And that will give you a good clue many Sundays as to the theme. All right, I want to go to the gospel lesson first then, where we, we're going to see this theme uh, really articulated, I think, very well. And this is... Uh, Matthew chapter 20, for those listening at home, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard that Jesus tells. Now, let's just, before we get going, let's just review uh, the definition of a parable. What's the, again, the Sunday school definition of a parable that you may have learned? Earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, and it, it's a story. In other words, Jesus is composing this. He is not telling of a factual event and reporting on a factual event that actually took place. The story uses earthly details, and its main purpose is to teach us something about life in the kingdom of God, where God rules in the hearts of people. And oftentimes, these parables kind of turn the ways of the world completely upside down. And that's what we're going to see today. As you might expect, this parable is going to emphasize the grace of God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God that he gives to us. Now, before we get into the parable itself, 
I want to back up because many times it is extremely helpful if you see what happened just before Jesus tells a parable. In other words, what have the disciples said? Who is standing around? Uh, you know, what, what is the context for this parable? And this one is a good example. So before we get to Matthew 20, I want to turn back to Matthew 19. And we're going to start at verse 16. And this is Jesus, so in your Bibles, you've got to do this. This is not on, the, on a, not on the sheets that you have here for those who are here. Matthew 19, starting with verse 16. And Jesus has an encounter here with a rich young ruler. So starting there at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now right away as Lutherans, our, our spiritual antenna go up, don't they? That's the wrong question to ask, we want to say. But Jesus indulges this guy and kind of uh, leads him along here, okay? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. True statement? Sure. There's a problem with it, though. What? We can't keep the commandments, right? But he's going to get him to see this in just a second. He said to him, which ones? So the guy's ears are up. Which ones should I be keeping? As if we're going to, Jesus is going to narrow it down to a few, you know, just focus on these. Uh, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That last one being a summary, really, of the second table of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch the answer this guy gives. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, first of all, had the guy really kept those commandments that Jesus described perfectly? No. It may be that he has not committed outward acts, especially when it comes to, for example, the, the fifth commandment of murdering uh, someone. But how else can you break that commandment? Not just by the outward act of murdering someone, but, yeah. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, he who is angry with his brother, right? He who calls, says to his brother, you fool. So it's not just the outward act of killing someone. And, of course, this man didn't realize this. But what was the main problem for this guy? Not just that he had great possessions, but what? He, he loved those possessions, perhaps, just a little too much, right? And turns and walks away. Now, let me just be clear here. Is there anything wrong with having great possessions? No. The Bible, this is one of the most often misquoted Bible passages. You will hear people say, money is the root of all evil. It's the love or the lusting after money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? Uh, can you think of a uh, rich guy uh, in the scriptures who did a very good thing? What uh, was it, uh, an example of, a, uh, of someone very good? Joseph of Arimathea, we think, was quite wealthy. And what
came to claim the body of Christ. He was a member of the council, also came to claim the body of Christ off the cross. Uh, we think that Zebedee, the father of James and John, was a pretty wealthy guy uh, because they left the, not only the boat but the other workers and followed Jesus. So it was not, we don't think, uh, just a small fishing operation, but could very well have been uh, quite wealthy. So again, it's not just having riches that is the problem. It's the problems those can create, I guess you would say, if our life is focused on them, okay? And they are the most important thing in our life. In other words, if they become a God in our life. So the other thing we got to establish here is, in Bible times, what was the conclusion if you were wealthy, very affluent? What was the conclusion about your relationship with God? You and God must be just like that. You, you, you must be on good terms with God because look at all that he has given you, okay? Now, there is, there is certainly truth in that, right? Because we would say that all that we have comes from God. But is every rich or wealthy person necessarily, just because they have a lot of wealth, necessarily in a good relationship with God? No. Now, also, the opposite was true. Uh, the belief was back at that time that if you were poor, if you were uh, diseased like a leper, if you had something really wrong in your life, what must be your situation with God? Just the opposite. Something's wrong. Remember when Jesus and his disciples come upon the man who has been born blind? What's the question that pops out of the disciples' mouth? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? See, there's an assumption right there that if, if, since he was born blind, it must be the result of some sin that he or his parents has committed. And Jesus does away with that and says it's not that he sinned or his parents, but that the glory of God might be manifest. So keep this in mind. The, the thinking was, if you're wealthy, you and God are, you've got a special connection with God, and if you're in a bad way, things must be bad between you and God. Keep this in mind, because let's go on now. Uh, we're at verse 23, Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to get into the camel and eye of the needle thing uh, for 10 minutes, but the idea here is it is difficult. It is, it is fraught with all kinds of possible complications, okay, for a rich person. Now watch the, watch the reaction of the disciples here, okay? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See that thinking on their part? That if, if, if that's the case, Lord, then, then who can be saved? And you just get the feeling that the disciples are starting to get a little shook here themselves. If a rich person can't be saved, what about us, right? So Jesus, go, uh, they go on rather, but Jesus looked at them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
Now here comes the golden question. Peter speaks up as he so often does, right? Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So what's Peter's, he still, he still can't get this out of his head that the, if, if the rich person's great, great difficulty being saved, what's his point here to Jesus? If anybody deserves a place, it's us. We've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? It's only fair if we get, we get something out of this, right? Look at all that we have sacrificed. In effect, Peter is articulating the opposite question that this guy asked at the beginning. This guy asks, what must I do to be saved? And here Peter says, Lord, look at all we've done. There must be something for us. And then we won't read through it, but Jesus goes on with the remaining verses in chapter 19 and assures them that they're going to have uh, great places in the kingdom. Don't worry about it, in effect. But you see, it's against this backdrop of, of an entitlement kind of approach to Jesus that I've done this, so I deserve something in return that Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 20. Now, let's read through this parable first, and then we'll go back and kind of decode it and get the meaning of it. Starting at, at verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last." All right, there's our earthly story. Now, first of all, we got to say, let's just kind of review this. The owner of the vineyard uh, goes out to hire the workers. Let's say it's 6 a.m., and when he hires the first ones, and they go out, they're in the vineyard. Then he goes out about the third hour, which would be 9. 
uh, goes out the sixth hour, uh, which would be noon. Uh, ninth hour, three o'clock, eleventh hour, five o'clock in the afternoon. We got that expression at the eleventh hour. This literally was the eleventh hour. Five o'clock in the afternoon. So we got all these workers in the vineyard. They've all come in at different times. And he calls forward, when, when it's going to be the end of the day and they get their wages, he calls forward, first of all, the guys who came in at the 11th hour and gives them a denarius. Now, a denarius was, uh, by definition, the pay you would get after working a full day. Okay? So, of course, those guys who worked just the one hour are not going to complain at all. But what are the other guys thinking about that came in earlier, especially the 6 a.m. guys? Boy. This is gonna be good, right? When we get up there, and what do they end up getting? The same thing. They happy about that? No, they grumble against the owner of the vineyard. We bore the heat of the day, and these guys who came in and only worked one hour, they, only, they got the same as we did. You made them equal to us. How dare you, okay? now. Let's start decoding this parable and figure out what the parts are and who's who in this parable and what's Jesus trying to get across to us, all right? Now, whenever you hear vineyard in the New Testament in particular, uh, it, it is just understood to be the kingdom of God, or, or might say New Testament, the church. Now, I didn't just make this up. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. When any Jew would hear this about a vineyard, he would be thinking, about Isaiah 5. So let's turn back to that. And it's a very famous section that God actually describes his, his people as a vineyard. Isaiah 5, starting at verse 1. This is in your scriptures, not on the sheets that I gave you. Okay, Isaiah 5, starting at verse 1. So Isaiah says here, let me, that would be Isaiah, Sing for my beloved. My beloved would be God. So let me, Isaiah, sing for my beloved God. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, which would be God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Huh. Very fertile hill might be the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. Okay. He, uh, verse 2, he dug it and cleared it of stones. So he's preparing it for them, just like he gave them the victory over all their enemies, and planted it with choice vines. So it's not, these aren't scrubby vines that he puts in. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower on it. Now, what was a watchtower for in a vineyard? Keep watch over the vineyard against predators, right? four-legged kind and the two-legged kind. You've got to look out there and make sure your, your vineyard is going to be all right. Um, and, and hewed out a wine vat in it. That's where they would crush the grapes and make the wine. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild or sour grapes. The point here, God plants his vineyard. He does everything that can possibly be done for his vineyard. Choice vines, watchtower, uh, wine press. He expects it's going to give a huge harvest of wine. He comes for it, and what does it end up yielding? Not good grapes, but sour grapes or wild grapes, okay? The kind that make your, your uh, mouth pucker or so sour, okay? Look at verse 7. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay? So this, this section back in Isaiah 5 kind of sets the tone for us. So when we hear a vineyard in the New Testament, most of the time we're talking about, if it's used figuratively at least, we're talking about God's people or the kingdom of God. Those workers, who is the owner of the vineyard then? In the, back to the parable in Matthew 20, who's the, who's the owner of the vineyard who goes out and does the hiring? God is, or we could say Jesus or God, either one. All right, who are the workers that get called in? Yeah, and, and people being called into his church, being called into his vineyard, right? And we're talking uh, Christians here who are called in at all different times and brought into the vineyard, okay? Now, we've got to be careful. Uh, you can't make parables walk on all fours. And here's one case. What is the pay that we get at the end of the day? Eternal life. Forgiveness, eternal life, salvation, however you want to phrase it, okay? So again, you've got the workers coming in at all different times. They all get the full amount at the end of the day, right? And so the, the I guess you'd say the main point or the main teaching is that what God gives at the end of the day has absolutely no relation to any human effort, any time spent in the vineyard, any effort expended in the vineyard, or any other human factor. God, by his grace, gives it all to everyone, okay? Now remember, let's go back. What was Peter implying with his question? I deserve what? We all deserve something great. What does Jesus say here? No. There's, it's no, there's no relation to that whatsoever. You're, you're thinking the wrong way, okay? And it, so everybody gets everything. What we receive from God is the whole thing, and it is not related at all to human effort, time spent in the vineyard, or any other human calculation. It is strictly by God's grace, okay? Now, from a worldly perspective, what do we think? That's, that's not what? That's not right. That's not fair, right? But when you stop and think about it, it's really wonderfully unfair, isn't it? Everybody gets the whole thing from God. Now, let me stop and ask you this question. Why do we as human beings want to contribute at least something to what we get from God? Why do we want to say, I did this, or I contributed this to my salvation? What's it all about, Rob? Control, okay. Scott? Pride, yeah, sinful pride, right? Look at me, I did this, right? You think of a time when the disciples exhibited this kind of, apart from Peter and what just happened here, more than once the disciples were arguing about what? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, right? And then another time, the mother of James and John come to, comes to Jesus and, Lord, remember my boys here, you know, when you come into your kingdom, one at your right, one at your left, right? 
So they've got that. And of course, there, there would be the Pharisees who would have felt that they deserved the highest place of all. In fact, in the temple, they would sit in the highest places of all, uh, in the synagogues, rather. And, you know, Jesus, in fact, told his disciples, don't be like that, right? So there's something about us that makes us, and in fact, it goes right back to what? I think it was mentioned back here, our sinful pride, right? We want to be able to say that I did it. And sin always turns us in on ourselves and wants uh, we want ourselves to be the main focal point, the main focus. Now, I'll tell you what, this doesn't even stop when we become members of the kingdom. What are some things that even Christians might, in a moment of weakness, say to themselves, well, you know, maybe I'm just a little more deserving than somebody else. What are some factors? What are some things they might throw out there to, to bolster the thought that, well, you know, maybe I'm just a little more deserving of this than somebody else. Can you think of any? Okay. Right, the thief on the cross. Let's hold that in abeyance because we're going to do that right at the end when we get to the, uh, the uh, really hopeful part here as well. How often you go to church, right? I'm in church every Sunday. Boy, I'm not like those people who come once a month or once every six months or just Christmas and Easter. Okay? What, so that's one. What else? Come on, there's got to be a lot of them. Yeah, I'm, boy, every time there's a need at church, I'm right there. You know, maybe I, I, just, I know it's by grace, but I, if anybody deserves it, right? I, I've uh, uh, served on the altar guild for 30 years. I've sung in the choir for 20 years. We could go on and on and on and on down the line. So we have to be careful that we see, you know, we can be susceptible to this kind of thinking ourselves. Even after we are in the vineyard, and those guys did complain after they were in the vineyard in the parable, didn't they? We have to realize that these so-called, well, they are not so-called, they are. These good works that we do what, do they have any relationship to making us right with God? No, we're already right with God. God has already made us right with him. These are things we do now as a result of being made right with God. But see, our, our sinful human nature is such that we even at times want to take those things, the, the fruit that the Holy Spirit has produced in us, and throw it back to God as if we're again trying to say, you know, I think I deserve it just a little bit. Well, if you deserve it just a little bit, which is not true, then it's no longer grace, is it? Because grace is undeserved, unmerited love, okay? We have to watch this in our lives, too. That's the main point here I wanted to make, that, again, the good things that God is working in and through us are after he has already called us into the vineyard, made us right with him, there's no more that we need to do in terms of trying to deserve or be entitled to anything else, okay? Now, to Fred's point, the other hopeful thing here is, what about the person called in at the 11th hour into the kingdom? Isn't that great? They get not one one-twelfth 
They get the whole thing. The thief on the cross is exactly the, the example I was going to use, as, as Fred mentioned. You know, uh, Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we have had, and there are certainly, I would imagine, daily cases of people who are on their deathbed, drawing their last breaths, who profess finally a faith in Jesus Christ, and just like the thief on the cross, are brought into the vineyard at the 11th hour, and they get the whole thing, not one-twelfth. So, you know, what's that, uh, that expression, that Yogi Bear expression, it isn't over till it's over? That applies, doesn't it? That applies to people you may know, friends you may know, relatives you may have, uh, maybe even in some cases people right under your own roof that even under the, at the 11th hour, uh, they uh, can be brought into the vineyard and receive the whole denarius. And notice the response of Jesus there to the complaining worker. Aren't I allowed to do what I want with what is mine? And that's what he wants to do with what is his. He wants to give it all to all of us. And so what a gracious God we have uh, what a generous God we have who gives his gifts in total to all. It's the exact opposite of uh, Peter standing up and saying, we deserve it. No, don't worry, Peter. You're getting everything, and so is anybody else in the vineyard as well. Okay? Now, one other little side comment. <clears throat> we can kind of, uh, in a not-so-subtle way, communicate to people, what, people who come into the vineyard just really recently. I'm, sure, I, I'm not going to talk about St. Paul's here because I'm, I'm sure this does not happen here at St. Paul's. But in other Lutheran churches, or other churches, maybe not even Lutheran, other churches, new people come in and the attitude can be, well, you're what? You're new here. I've been here for 40 years. And what's, what's the, the impression you have to do what? You have to earn your stripes here first before you can say anything, right? And we have to be careful that we don't treat people who come in new, maybe new to the Christian faith, as though they are somehow second-class citizens, right? In the, in the second-class workers in the vineyard to keep the imagery the same. That they are entitled, they have been given by God everything and they are entitled to be treated as such by the rest of us as well. So, a lot, a lot here in this parable, but the main point, again, is God's grace. It is not earned or merited. We're not entitled to it. It's freely given to all in the vineyard. Okay? Any comments or questions before we move on to the epistle? Yes, Nicole. Right, right. Right. Yeah, Nicole's point was that, you know, back when the guy asked Jesus, which commandment should I uh, follow, he does, he does not mention the first commandment, which actually, if we could keep the first commandment perfectly, how many, how many commandments could we keep perfectly? All of them. If we could fear, love, and trust in God above all things, as Luther says, 
uh, we'd be able to do all things. But as soon as you sin against even your neighbor, who are you making? Uh, you're saying what I'm doing, what I want, is more important than what God wants. And what God has said he wants, he even expressed it. Yeah, why he didn't, I don't know. He seems to go toward the, a lot more toward the commandments in the second table, which are dealing with uh, other people, okay? But then what does Jesus do by pointing out the fact that he's got great wealth and really is saying that is your God, you know? Uh, he could have, the conversation could have gone this way. Jesus could have said, you shall have no other gods before me. And the guy responds with, well, I follow that one too. And then Jesus could have said, well, go sell all you have and follow me. Well, maybe you don't follow that one. So it could have gone that way as well. He just went a different route. Got to the same point. Okay? Any other uh, Yes? Right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, the passages that talk about differing degrees of glory, primarily in Romans, where we, uh, uh, and 1 Corinthians also, uh, we talk about the different... Uh, brightness of, of the planets Paul compares it to, we say we will be eternal, uh, equally uh, fully in, when it comes to our bliss or our um, uh, enjoyment, you might say, of heaven. But scriptures do indicate there might be differing degrees of glory, where Jesus talks about great is your reward in heaven. And again, these differing degrees. But it's not, it's not going to be that I will be at level six and I will look up and see Anne in level 12 and say, how come she's up there and I'm down here? We will be equally blissful, but it appears in Scripture that we will have differing degrees of glory in heaven. Okay? It's hard for us to, to imagine that and not be thinking, well, that's the way I would react. Why is she up there and I'm down here? But in heaven, we won't have any more of that because what, what's causing me to think that? My own sinfulness. Right. So going back to the same thing again. Dennis? Uh, it seems to be, again, somewhat related to what is done here in terms of service and, and so on. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we can look at that a little more depth next week, but uh, and again, that's a service after we are in the vineyard, not, not before. Okay? All right, anybody else got it? Let's talk about predestination, too, while we're at it. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> Yes. Yes. That's a great point. Uh, again, Nicole's point was that uh, you know, it's true that they get everything when it comes to their heavenly reward, but unfortunately those people have missed out on a lot of peace and joy that they could have had prior to that in this life as well. So that's, that's another way to look at it, uh, and, and peace and so on that, that we have as Christians on a day-in, day-out basis. They unfortunately didn't have that. But again, uh, you know, just to stick with the, the point here that it is by grace. It is not by anything we do. Okay, Rob? Right. 
Perfect segue. Rob is saying that the, the, the good deeds that we're going to do are set up ahead for us to do them. Let's go then to Ephesians chapter 2, the epistle lesson. That is exactly verse 10 uh, of the epistle lesson. So this is on your sheets now, Ephesians 2. This is printed out for you, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is one of the uh, most clear spots in all of Scripture when it comes to we're saved by grace from God. And one of the greatest spots to talk about original sin. All right, let's read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. And you were, de uh, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, let's go back and kind of take this apart here. And you. Now, in this section of Ephesians, when uh, Paul says you versus we, he's primarily talking about Gentile converts to the faith. And that's kind of evident when he talks about their former life. So, and you... Notice how were they? They were what? Dead. Not just a little nicked up or a little damaged goods here. They were dead. Now, of course, we're not talking about uh, physical dead, you know, brain uh, waves and no pulse. Spiritually dead. Headed for eternal banishment from God. Spiritually dead they were. Okay, now this is before their conversion, obviously. So they were dead, and notice in their trespasses and sins. There's really two words to say the same thing. However, the word trespass in, uh, in Greek is, implies a stumbling. Your feet are stumbling. And another way to think of it is if there's a line here that God has drawn and says, don't go over that line, that's sin over there. What do I do when I sin? I trespass over that line, right? God has said, don't go there. I trespass over. But the word primarily means to stumble and lose your footing. The word sin in the original language there has the, the connotation of missing a mark. It's like I'm uh, there's a target out there and I've got a bow and arrow and I shoot the arrow and I miss the mark. If the mark is what God wants me to do, what is pleasing in his life, that word for sin means sort of veering off and missing the mark. 
And Paul says, you were dead in your stumblings and missing of God's mark in which you once walked or walked before God, conducted your life before God, following the course of this world. And who would be the prince of the power of the air? Who does that sound like? Satan, yes. And that would include all the spirits. He's the prince of all the evil spirits and power of the air. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you used to live this way. The sons of disobedience, uh, a couple different ways you can take that. They are the offspring of disobedience, the ones who follow disobedience today, but probably just that they are the, the disobedient ones. So you used to follow them. Now, notice what he does in verse 3. Among whom, among these sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So now Paul is talking about not only Gentiles, but Gentiles and Jews as well. Just as Jews and Gentiles equally share God's grace, they also equally share in the, the uh, condemnation of their original sin. Okay? So notice he says there, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, what's the passions of our flesh? What is that? Yeah, the, the human sinful desire. Paul will many times contrast the flesh and the spirit, okay? Flesh being the sinful desires of the old sinful nature, spirit being Holy Spirit, the desires of God and the Holy Spirit, okay? So uh, we all did this... Uh, following once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Now watch this here. And were by nature children of wrath. So our natural state, without anything added to it, by nature, by our natural state, we are children of what? Wrath. Who's wrath? God's wrath upon us. Right. Notice again, Paul doesn't say there, we're just a little bit damaged, you know. We've got a little spark of the divine in us. All we need to do is kind of blow on it a little bit and fan it into a flame. No, we're dead. The pilot light is out. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's no spark there. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. And notice there, anybody escape this? Like the rest of mankind, it says there, right? So it's not just you folks here in Ephesus. This is the universal condition. Now, what kind of sin do we call that? The, the one that we are conceived and born in. What kind of sin do we call that? Take you back to your confirmation days. Well, natural sin is sometimes used, but it's original sin, right? Original sin versus actual sin, which would be acts of sin. Uh, but this is original sin. By our nature, we are this way. Uh, can dead people help themselves? No, not usually. I haven't seen one yet. So, I mean, there's a lot that comes across here that spiritually we are dead men walking without Christ, to quote a movie title, right? So, in verse 4, that's a great word that starts verse 4. You know, all this is the case with us, but God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of what? His great love for us. Notice there is nothing said here about the lovableness of us. In fact, just the opposite. It's because of his great love for us. So again, what do we call that love that we didn't earn or deserve? Grace. Unmerited love, unmerited favor of God. It's because of that, Paul says, that you have been saved, okay? Uh, Verse 5, you know, if we didn't get it the first time, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you know, Paul's going to make sure we don't get out of here without realizing this, right? Made us alive together with Christ. There's almost resurrection talk here, isn't there? We were dead. Christ made us alive, you know? And, and it's, um, when, did, when did each of us get made alive, so to speak, with Christ Jesus? At what point? Our baptism, right? Where it's called the washing of regeneration, restarting, renewing, making new again, right? Washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. We were raised with Christ in our baptism, okay? So Paul is, is reminding them of that. Uh, and goes on to say, uh, by grace you have been saved. Notice, it's have been saved. It's a one-time action, and there's a, there's a Greek tense here, a one-time action that has ongoing benefits, and that's the tense that's used here. It's a one-time thing. So, do I go through life trying to make myself right with God and trying to get uh, his favor and trying to make, it, uh, make myself uh, saved in his sight? No, I have been saved. It's a one-time deal, okay? It's done. I'm saved. And it has ongoing benefits into the future, okay? Uh, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So all of these things he's done for us demonstrate to us and to everybody else the incredible grace, the incredible love that he has for us. You know, that love is not a love that demands that we measure up to something before he's going to love us. Uh, Think about the people, uh, sometimes think about the people that we love in our lives. So often they are people who can do something back for us, aren't they? Not the way with God. He loves us with a love that doesn't demand that you measure up to this bar first, and then I'll love you. Just the opposite. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he demonstrated his love for us, right? As Paul says, God demonstrated his love for, this, for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, right? All right, going on. Now, here, here we get to the point that here's where we, we normally start quoting this as Lutherans right here. This is one of our favorite verses, and we leave off verse 10. For by grace, here again, you have been saved. So grace is the cause of our salvation, we might say. That's what moved God to do what he did through faith. Faith is the vehicle, then, 
by which we receive the blessings of God. Luther talked about faith as being like an outstretched hand into which God places all of his blessings into it. Okay? And again, who creates this faith in us? God does. Again, it's nothing that I can say, well, I have more faith than you do. No, God creates the faith in us to begin with. So again, if you get the idea that we do, we have no credit here, that's exactly correct. Okay? God does it all for us. Notice here, and if we didn't get it, Paul says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Again, trying to get across the idea, not related whatsoever to anything we do or don't do. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, no one can do what Peter started off saying. You know, we left everything and followed you, Lord. What will there be for us? Again, wrong question, Peter. You know? Then, uh, verse 10. This is the one we, we, many times Lutherans, we like to leave this off. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. You get the idea. We are molded. We are shaped. We are made what we are by whom? By God, right? And we then, uh, he has prepared good works for us to do. Now, what is the only kind of work that can be a good work in the eyes of God? A work that flows from what? Faith. Yeah, without faith, it is impossible to please God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I'm sorry, it's in Hebrews. And again, a good work is only one that flows from faith, okay? Now, will Christians do good works? Absolutely. Uh, again, another famous saying is that it's faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always results in good works, okay? And it's just what Christians do. We want to please God. We want to do those things that are pleasing in his sight now. His spirit has worked on our will and continues to work in our lives. Uh, again, another old expression. An apple tree produces apples not so that it can become an apple tree, but what? Because it is an apple tree. It's just what apple trees do, right? And same in our lives as Christians. God has prepared good works for us to do, and we walk in them, okay? God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. And God works through us to accomplish his will on this earth. Who does he work, who does he work through to uh, raise and nurture children in the Christian faith? Parents. That's a God-pleasing thing. That's a good work, okay? Just one example, okay? And we go down a whole list of things. So again, we do these things. Isn't it kind of neat that God has prepared them for us, and we kind of walk through them, uh, empowered by him and by his spirit to do these good things daily, on a daily basis, as a result of being saved by his grace, okay? Not so that we can be saved by his grace. All right, I think we got about two minutes uh, to cover uh, the last lesson, and I will tell you that this lesson was my second choice. <laughs> because the, the Old Testament lesson I originally picked for next Sunday 
and I didn't find this out until a couple weeks ago, is the Old Testament lesson for today. And I didn't want to have the same Old Testament lesson two weeks in a row. And so I picked a different one from Malachi. Uh, we won't look at the, what leads up to this, but the people of God, in effect, were saying, what good is it to, be, what, what good is it to follow God? The evil people seem to be prospering, and we seem to be uh, not prospering at all. We seem to be downtrodden. The evil people seem to be prospering. Uh, is that a question people can ask today? Sure. Yeah, we look around, and the, the people who don't believe in God, even the existence of God, they seem to be prospering from a worldly standpoint. Again, we have to be careful how we define that term. And here, you know, we as Christians seem to have more than our fair share of burdens and sufferings. But just uh, really quickly, we'll just run through this, and then we've got to go. Uh, verse 16 of Malachi 3. Then those who feared the Lord, in other words, there was all this complaining, and then those who feared the Lord, or those who were godly, spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before, uh, before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. What does that book of remembrance sound like? Another book in the scriptures, the book of life. Yeah, in Revelation, we won't look at it now, but Revelation 21, uh, verse 27, uh, Revelation 3, verse 5, you know, the names of those who are saved, written in the book of life. Okay? Um, so, uh, verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So here, we looked at this, I think, last week a little bit in conjunction with today's Old Testament lesson. But notice there, God refers to his people as his treasured possession, just as he does in today's Old Testament lesson. If you haven't been to church yet, look at it when you get to that point. He talks about us as his treasured possession. He will spare us like a man spares his son who serves him. There's an irony here. Who did not spare his son? God himself, right? Is it an irony there? A man will spare his son, but God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for all of us. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So in other words, things are going to be right in the end. Uh, the, the righteous are going to be receiving what is due them from God, and the wicked, on the other hand, just the opposite. So to quell all that complaining about how come the wicked are prospering and we're not, God, in effect, says things are going to be right in the end. Okay? All right, that's a quick quick through that one. All right, next week we'll look at the verses uh, coming up for the following Sunday, and that is going to be an emphasis on Scripture, Holy uh, Sola Scriptura, again in the special uh, sermon series that we're beginning here starting next Sunday. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. This has been the Bible study class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Coming up in a few minutes is a worship service from our Savior Lutheran Church in Fenton on KFUO.